Hey, welcome to Understanding Christianity, a podcast hosted by myself, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's been a while since I've actually recorded a standalone podcast. Normally, um, I try to carve out time to do this, but lately there's been a lot of things going on with travel and just doing ministry, and it's that time of year where uh, things are happening. Uh, My oldest son is getting ready to graduate from high school. Um, I'm getting ready to get my doctorate in expository preaching from Southern Seminary, so I have graduation in a few weeks myself, and uh, one of our elders wives, a dear, dear friend of ours just passed away. And so there's just been a lot of things going on in our family and the life of our church, which has really prevented me from doing um, a podcast besides just the normal teaching and preaching ministries of the church that we upload. And so I appreciate you listening today. Uh, One of the things I've been listening to a lot lately, just in preparation for some debates that I'm doing and just in conversations, is just um, this whole idea about God's sovereignty. Um, My wife does not listen to podcasts. She could pretty much care less. Not that she's not theologically minded. She's very theologically minded. She's very smart. She's very spiritual. She just doesn't like to listen to all the banter and all the podcasts and all the controversy uh, surrounding these different issues. And and oftentimes I'll tell her some of the things that I've read on a blog or listened to on a podcast. And it, it always comes back to how Arminians and synergists really just tried to deny the absolute sovereignty of God. And she'll say, well, why do they have such a problem with God's sovereignty? Why do they fight so hard against God's sovereignty? Why don't they just accept it? And the answer I usually give her is because they want to elevate man's free will to this high, high position that that basically uh, they value the autonomy of of human freedom over the sovereignty of God. And she's like, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And so uh, that's probably the best world to live in, that that you're understanding the sovereignty of God and you just don't get why Arminians and synergists uh, believe the way they do. But, But why? Do Arminians, Synergists, traditional Southern Baptists, non-Calvinists, whatever label you want to do, why do they not truly believe in God's absolute, meticulous sovereignty over all things? And when you listen to them or when you read them, the argument goes something like this. They'll say things like this. God purposely limits word there, limits his power in order to preserve the free will of humans. God God is sovereign, but he purposely limits that sovereignty. He limits that power because he values the free will of people above his sovereignty. They'll also say that God has a general plan for the future, but that future can be affected by what humans decide to do. So God's plan can be thwarted, And on those rare, rare occasions where God has to intervene, God will directly intervene in the course of history and and He will override man's decisions. But ultimately, God is so sovereign that He's limited His sovereignty so that humans can have ultimate free will. And they'll say things like the word sovereignty doesn't even show up in the Bible. And you guys are always talking about sovereignty and sovereignty. and, And that word doesn't even show up in the Bible. And they'll say that that the definition of sovereignty is that God overrules 
the will of people in such a way that his plan is accomplished. I was in a meeting a couple weeks ago with other pastors, uh, men that I revere and men that I um, look up to, but there's a lot of differences in theology. Uh, They were all Southern Baptists, and we were in a meeting, and one of the pastors asked the question about um, Proverbs 21, about uh, the king's heart being like a, a channel of water. The Lord directs it where he wills, and um, he, he asked the question, um, how does this affect the, the upcoming election? Does, does, is the election already predetermined on who the next president's going to be? And, and I chimed in and said, yes, I think God's already ordained who the next president's going to be. And then he said, well, why, do, why vote then? If it's already rigged, if God's already got it determined, then why vote? Uh, and so that little sentiment uh, is espoused at times. And then basically his, his conclusion was that um, God overrules in the events of men, God intervenes after the fact to make sure it turns out according to His will, but God may not have a sovereign ordained decree that He determined to take place before the foundation of the world. God simply allows things to happen so that in the end, God can override those things and make them work out for good. And so, in, in the Arminian, synergist, non-Calvinist, traditional Southern Baptist, I hate to put all those labels together, but I don't want to mislabel people. Uh, basically, their view of sovereignty is that God allows things to happen. God permits things to happen. And then God responds to those things to make sure that in the end they work out for good. But God does not have a divine decree or purpose, a meticulous plan, ordaining all things that come to pass. Now, before we look at the scriptures, it's sometimes beneficial to find out what the confessions of faith of those who've gone before us, how they have struggled with this issue of God's sovereignty. And so for the past four or five hundred years, you've had the great confessions, the great doctrinal statements of the church give their understanding of God's sovereignty. The Westminster Confession of Faith, probably the the most famous one, says this in chapter 3 about God's eternal decree. Quote, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so... As thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet He has not decreed anything because He foresaw it as future or is that which would come to pass upon such conditions? That's a very comprehensive statement, a well-thought-out, deeply worded statement in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 pretty much takes the exact same wording. And just to let you know, the, the Second London Baptist Confession is almost exactly word for word in a lot of areas of the Westminster Confession, except for obviously the issue of baptism by immersion. Well, what about the Heidelberg Catechism? Uh, question 27 and question 28 of the Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, 
deal with the issue of the providence of God. Question 27, what does it mean by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. That's a more poetic way to state God's absolute sovereignty. The Westminster Confession, very theological, very logical. The the Heidelberg, a little bit more poetic. Question 28. What advantage is it to know that God has created and by His providence does still uphold all things? What, What benefit is that to us? What does that give us when we think about God's absolute sovereignty? And their answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, And then in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from His love since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. God is sovereign. A.W. Pink, in his famous book, The Sovereignty of God, defines it this way. Quote, to say that God is sovereign is to, to declare that He is almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat His counsels, thwart His purposes, or resist His will. Now, oftentimes you may hear non-Calvinistic, traditional Southern Baptist, Arminians, synergists, however you want to label them, they will oftentimes appeal to A.W. Tozer and C.S. Lewis and will give definitions of sovereignty. And a lot of times I've been, I've been hearing this statement from A.W. Tozer that they're using of his definition of sovereignty from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, under the attributes of God, under the chapter on sovereignty. And this is what they'll say, quote, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to Make it. That's the big mantra that you'll hear about the Arminian synergistic view of sovereignty. God is sovereign, and in His sovereignty, He has chosen for man to have freedom. And yet, when you read the beginning chapters, the beginning paragraphs of the sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink, you'd think that maybe he's contradicting himself. Let me read to you A.W. Tozer's own words in paragraphs before that famous statement. He says this, quote, Furthermore, his sovereignty requires that he be absolutely free, which means simply that he must be free to do whatever he wills to do anywhere at any time to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. Were he less than free... He must be less than sovereign. God is said to be absolutely free because no one and no thing can hinder him or compel him 
or stop him. He's able to do as he pleases always, everywhere, forever. To be thus free means also that he must possess universal authority. That he has unlimited power we know from the scriptures and may deduce from certain other of his attributes. His purpose in every single detail without interference. It almost seems that Tozer is contradicting himself. Now, I don't want to delve into a theology of Tozer. I really appreciate Tozer. I like Tozer a lot. But it seems like he wants to waffle on this issue. God is sovereign over every meticulous detail without interference where God sovereignly ordains all things to pass and, and he's free to do whatever he wants to. But at the same time, the definition then goes, well, then God is free to let man have freedom. And so therefore, man's freedom can then um, interfere with God's sovereign, meticulous plan. And so I, I think he's kind of straddling the fence there on the issue. But what does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach? You know, there's a lot of talk these days about proof texts that Calvinists use. And, and there, there's websites where you can go to and they'll, they'll say, here's the big proof text that Calvinists use to prove their point. And they'll, they'll give a definition, their definition or their response. And, and it's really not in relation to the five points of Calvinism. I'm not going to deal with the five points of Calvinism in this podcast, because I think you have to back up a step. And I like what James White says. He says, before you even deal with the five points of Calvinism, you've got to deal with the fundamental issue that undergirds the five points of Calvinism, and that is the absolute meticulous sovereignty of God and His, cre- and his freedom as, as the potter. And so before we even look at whether God is sovereign in the election of sinners and on all the issues related to salvation, fundamentally we've got to ask, how sovereign is God? Does God limit His sovereignty because He values the free will of His creation, or is God absolutely sovereign over everything that comes to pass, like the confessions teach? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the confessions teach. It doesn't matter what A.W. Tozer says. It doesn't matter what this theologian or that theologian says. The ultimate authority always rests in what saith the Scriptures. What does the Bible say? And synergists, Arminians, non-Calvinistic, traditional Southern Baptists, they'll look at verses that teach God's absolute sovereignty, and somehow they try to get around them. Probably the most famous passage of Scripture is Ephesians 1.11. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, at face value, it says God works out all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, what they're going to say is that, yeah, we agree with that. God does work out all things according to the counsel of His will. But we have to understand what God's will is. And God's will is that man would have freedom. And so this doesn't say anything about whether God chooses some for salvation and others, whether um, human free will can somehow overthrow God's purposes. Uh, This is the idea that God has a will and His will is that He give man free will. And so He's going to work out everything according to the counsel of His will and that is to limit His sovereignty. That's the way they're going to interpret it. But the counsel of God's will is in relationship to the depravity of man. Ephesians 2, 1-8 clearly teaches that 
man is dead in sins and trespasses. They're, we're children of wrath and that we're, that we're dead and we need to be made alive together with Christ by God's sovereign grace. We've been saved. And so in the context of even the book of Ephesians, it teaches that man in and of himself is not free to choose because he's spiritually dead. He has to be made alive. God has to raise him to spiritual life. And working out all things according to the counsel of his will is God's sovereign right to to do that. Other passages I'll look at, Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. And they'll say, yes, we believe God does all that He pleases. We just don't see that God pleases to choose some for salvation and others for not or, or to irresistibly draw sinners to Himself. We know what God pleases to do. And, that, and what God pleases to do is to give man the free will to come to Him uh, on their own. And that may not be a fair statement because others have said, God does not leave man on their own. He gives the, the witness of Scripture and the plea, uh, the appeal, um, the powers in the appeal, they would say, to come. But, but they would say, again, God limits His sovereignty. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose and they'll agree with that and say yeah god's going to accomplish all of his purpose yes god's counsel is going to stand and what that purpose is is to limit his sovereignty so that he can give man freedom god's purpose in the end is to allow man to have free will and so what they do is every time that god's sovereign purpose god's sovereign plan god's sovereign uh, decree every time they see that in scriptures they're going to add a caveat on that to say well we know what god's sovereign decree is we know what god's sovereign plan is we know what his counsel is his counsel his plan his sovereign will is to limit that sovereignty so as to give humans freedom god is sovereign and it's God's sovereign pleasure to give man freedom. They go back to that, quote, that Tozer quote. God in His sovereignty was so sovereign that He gave man the freedom in God's sovereignty to be free. Now, I want us to look at a biblical theology of God's sovereignty. While the word sovereignty may not show up in a lexicon, if you go from Genesis literally to Revelation, as we're going to do here, I just want to take you on a journey. And we're not going to have time to to, uh, expose and and exposit and to um, clearly um, give meaning to all of these texts or we'd be here all day. But I want to just give you a litany of verse after verse after verse to show you from Genesis to Revelation that God sovereignly, meticulously ordains all things that come to pass. So let's just first establish that God is righteous and good god is righteous and good deuteronomy 32 4 the rock his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a god of faithfulness and without iniquity just and upright is he god is without sin god does not commit sin god does not directly commit sin or do evil himself directly he's upright he's perfect he's just psalm 5 4 for you are not a god who delights in wickedness 
evil may not dwell with you. God is not evil. God is not sinful. God is perfect. God does not delight in wickedness. He's absolutely righteous. He's absolutely holy. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, in kind in all his works. Habakkuk 1, 13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God has pure eyes. God does not look upon evil. James 1, 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So God does not tempt people to do evil. God does not directly do evil. God does not directly sin. God is not evil in action, doing evil things. But at the same time, the scripture seems to teach that while God is light, God is pure, God is righteous, God is is perfect, He can ordain that sin happen to accomplish His purposes through secondary causes, while not himself being the responsible, direct responsible cause for those sinful actions. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So we've got to establish from the very beginning, God is not the direct author of sin. God does not directly do evil. God cannot sin. He's perfect. He's holy. He's just in all of his ways. Yet at the same time, he can ordain that sin or evil occur through secondary means, i.e. humans carrying those out without directly being the ultimate or direct cause of evil. We don't understand this fully, but the Bible clearly teaches it. So let's establish that, number one, God is absolutely holy in whom there is no sin at all. But let's also establish that we cannot fully understand God and His purposes. We just cannot. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 when Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments! And how inscrutable his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Again, two things in this passage of Scripture. We can't understand God. He is fully unknowable. We can't give him counsel. We can't give him wisdom. He is so big and awesome, but yet it says, for from Him come all things, and through Him come all things. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. This is a very important passage of Scripture because it addresses two issues about God's will. There is the secret sovereign will of God that we cannot see, we cannot know, that He is orchestrating behind the scenes, ordaining all that comes to pass. The secret things belong to the Lord. We we don't know those secret things. The secret, sovereign counsel, will of God, we do not know. Only God knows. 
But there's a second type of will that the things that are revealed, how is that revealed? It's revealed through the written scripture. It's revealed through the the law of God. It's revealed through his word. And, and, And how are we to respond to that? That we may do all the words of this law. This is the revealed, written, direct will of command. This is God's will that he reveals to us through the scriptures, through the law that tell us what we are supposed to do, what ought to happen, how we ought to live. And that's different than God's secret will. We don't know. God's secret will is what will happen infallibly because God ordains it. God's will of command is what ought to happen as we obey. But that always doesn't happen. We don't always obey. And so God's will of command can be defied. God's will of command cannot be fulfilled God's will of command can be thwarted every time that we sin, every time that we disobey. We are not fulfilling God's will of command, the thing that has been revealed for us to obey. But the secret things of God will always be accomplished. He will accomplish that because it's His secret sovereign plan. He's not given that to us. We're not responsible for fulfilling that will. That's the secret sovereign will of God, not the revealed written will of God that we ought to obey. So there's a distinction even in that verse between the secret sovereign will of God that He orchestrates behind the scenes in His own divine purpose and decree. And then in in distinction to that, there's the, the moral written law of God that we ought to obey, that we should obey, but that we don't obey and can be broken because of our disobedience. Two different types of God's will. So we've established that God is absolutely good and righteous and who does not sin. And we've also established that we can't fully understand the ways of God. He has a secret sovereign will that he chooses to keep from us in the secret counsel of his will. But let's also establish that we have clear evidence that God is absolutely and meticulously sovereign over all things. What I want to do is I want to go from Genesis to Revelation and just show you verse after verse that teach God's absolute meticulous sovereignty over all things. And again, like I said earlier, I'm not going to have a chance to go into great detail on each of these verses, but I just want to lay forth a biblical theology of this theme in the history of redemption. If you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, where Abraham tried to pass Sarah off as his sister and and lied. And King Abimelech was awakened in a dream about this. Listen to what God said to Abimelech in his dream. In Genesis 20, verse 6, Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God is telling Abimelech, the king, I sovereignly kept you from sinning. I sovereignly kept you from taking Sarah in as your maiden, as your concubine. And so God intervened directly in that situation. We also know Genesis 50, 20. It's the story of Joseph and his brothers. 
We know that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They did evil against him. They left him for dead. They lied to his father, Jacob. They are accountable. They are guilty. They are culpable. They will be held responsible for the sin that they designed against Joseph. But on three occasions in Genesis in that story, and it culminating in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph sees it from God's perspective and said it was God's design that this all happened. Genesis 50, 20, he's talking to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, the evil, for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, synergists, Arminians, others will look at that word and say, you meant evil, but God used that evil and turned it out for good. But that's not the way that that word is used in the original Hebrew text. The word really means design, purpose. And it's the same word used for both Joseph and for God. Joseph's brothers meant, purposed, ordained, did evil. And God purposed, ordained that evil for good. So we see some compatibilism here where Joseph's brothers are accountable in acting freely in their sin, yet at the same time doing exactly what God had ordained or designed to take place. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. This is an example of, we often think of of Pharaoh's heart being hardened, but here God hardens the heart of a, a Canaanite king to allow Moses and the children of Israel to pass through. And the Lord did this. The Lord meticulously and sovereignly intervened in the life of this pagan king to make his heart obstinate, to, um, to, to, to make his heart hardened. Joshua eleven twenty, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Again, God is intervening in Canaanite pagan um, armies to harden their hearts as they came to the, against the Israel in battle. And so you, you see Pharaoh, we didn't look at that, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That's the famous one. But God also hardened um, the king. And um, back up in Deuteronomy, the king's heart Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and here in Joshua, it's the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. What about Jonathan, Saul's son? What about his theology in going into battle? In 1 Samuel 14, 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan knows his theology. If God is going to purpose something, if God's going to fight for us, nothing can hinder God's sovereign purpose in saving us, whether there's only two of us or whether there's a bunch of us. 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. This is when Absalom is rebelling against his father, David, and he's trying to plot a military plan, and David's 
um, friend Hushai goes in there as kind of a spy. And then there's Ahithophel, who is the other one that's given him advice. But, but listen to uh, what it says in 2 Samuel 17, 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord has ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. David sends Hushai in as a spy to confuse Absalom, but Absalom uh, believes Ahithophel, but then the Lord ordains to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. So even in, in military strategies, the Lord intervenes. Ezra 6.22, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The Lord directly intervenes in the heart of the king of Assyria. Over and over again, we see God intervening directly in the hearts of these kings, all the way back to Abimelech with Abraham, to Sihon during Moses' time, to the Canaanite leaders during Joshua's time, and and here also in Ezra coming back after the exile with the Assyrian king. The Lord turned the heart of the king. The Lord sovereignly intervened. Job chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job realized that even the bad things that happened to him, the evil, the sin, the suffering, the loss of his children, even the physical sores on his body was from God. Now, obviously, we know the cosmic drama that Satan is the instrument by by which God uses to inflict Job, but Satan cannot operate independently of God. God is the one that's sovereignly orchestrating this. And then at the end of Job, Job 42.2, Job, after he's been confronted with the sovereign God, says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God's sovereign purpose cannot be thwarted. It can't be thwarted by men. It can't be thwarted by decisions. It can't be thwarted by uh, political maneuvering. God is sovereignly going to accomplish all things because he can do all things and his purpose cannot be thwarted. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be stymied. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, now what's this talking about? They used to cast lots back in the day. It would be very similar to us rolling dice. And, you know, you look at a dice and, 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 you know, do you get a six? Do you get a one? Do you get a three? And we may look at that as chance. You know, we, you play Yahtzee and you roll the dice or, or you play backgammon and you want double six. And is that just chance? What the Proverbs here saying is that that very decision of how the dice shows up, whether it's six or one, that decision is from the Lord. The Lord even ordains the rolling of dice. 
Now, we've seen illustrated in all these kings how the Lord intervened in their heart to prevent them from doing something or moving them to do something. And Proverbs 21.1 answers that. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, I've heard non-Calvinists or synergists or Arminians say, we believe that, but it's not true in every case. God, that's not an absolute statement, that God doesn't do that absolutely in all situations. And the problem I have with that is when you begin to say and make qualifications saying, well, God does this sometimes, but not all the time, then who becomes the arbiter of when God does it and when God doesn't do it? You're basically placing a limitation on God saying that, you know, God does that sometimes, but not all the time. Now, the answer that I have to that is we don't know. Remember Deuteronomy 29, 29? The secret things belong to the Lord. There may be times when God sovereignly intervenes in the life of a king or a ruler or a leader. There may be times when God is hands off and lets that person go the course of their own sin. But either way, God is sovereign in this situation. We can't just make a blanket statement saying, well, that happened back in the Old Testament, but God would never do that now. Now, one of the passages of Scripture that a lot of Arminians and synergists and, and non-Calvinist, traditional Southern Baptists, whatever you want to label them. One thing they don't deal with, I've never heard them really deal with, is the book of Ecclesiastes. If there ever was a book that teaches the meticulous sovereignty of God over all things, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. And we often look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and sometimes we preach this at funerals, and there's the famous birds song from the 1960s. To everything turn, 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 there is a sea. You know that song from the 60s? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, teach God's meticulous sovereignty, absolute sovereignty over all things. For everything... There is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, that Hebrew word really means appropriate. God has made everything, everything, God has made everything appropriate in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has a sovereign purpose from beginning to end. He ordains things to happen. Everything is appropriate in its time. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has 
done it so that people fear him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. God ordains everything as appropriate for its time. And there's a listing of all these things. And so God meticulously, sovereignly determines who's going to be born at what exact time. God sovereignly, meticulously determines who's going to die at what time. When a seed is planted, when it's going to grow, when someone's going to be healed, when something's going to be broken down, when there's going to be mourning, when there's war, when there's peace, all things under the sun. In other words, everything that happens in the universe under God's purview, He's he's sovereign over, happens according to its appropriate time that God has sovereignly ordained from beginning to end and nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. That sounds to me like meticulous sovereignty. Ecclesiastes 7:14. In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So if you're experiencing times of joy, remember, there's a appointed time, an appropriate time for everything that God has ordained. If you're experiencing prosperity and you're joyful, God has made it. If you're experiencing adversity, if you're experiencing pain, if you're experiencing suffering, God has made that as well. We often think that when good things happen to us, God must be blessing us. When bad things happen to us, oh, that's the devil. When we must realize that God is meticulously sovereign over all things. He's made the one as well as the other, the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Who will cancel it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Now, the answer is nobody. When God has purposed something, no human decision, no human plan, even the free will of humans cannot annul or stretch or turn back God's sovereign, secret, purposeful will that He has ordained from beginning to end, before the foundation of the world. Listen to Isaiah 45, 7-9. This is God speaking. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heaven, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, A pot among earthen pots, does the clay say to who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? This is some powerful statement that that, that we don't want to often acknowledge. We like the fact that when good things happen, when there's light, when there's well-being, when there's blessings, that's from the hand of God. That's definitely God's hand. 
God has sovereignly intervened in my life. He's given me blessing. He's given me joy. He's he's made me prosper. I'm going to give God praise for that. But notice what else it says. God creates darkness. God creates calamity. God ordains suffering. God meticulously plans when you're going to suffer. He says, I am the Lord who does all these things. And then he gives the analogy about, well, we may not like that. We may not like the fact that God is meticulously and absolutely sovereign over all things. And so we're going to tell God, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? As if the clay has right to speak back to the potter on how to do things. The potter has sovereign rights over the clay to do with the clay whatever he wishes. We see the same theme in Lamentations chapter 3, 37 through 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? If something happens, if a word is spoken, if something good happens, it's from the Lord. If something bad happens, if something evil happens, if some type of suffering happens, does not that also come from the Lord? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Again, we like to play the game. Everything good comes from God and we'll give Him praise. But if there's suffering, if there's evil, if there is um, disease, if there's sickness, that must be from Satan or that must be something outside of God's control that He, he has no control over. It's from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come. Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say His hand or say to Him, What have you done? So God is sovereign over all the inhabitants of the earth. And He's going to do according to His will both in the heavens and on the earth. And nobody can say, God, what are you doing? You have no right to do this. Nobody can stop God's sovereign hand from moving and doing what He has purposed to do. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Who is responsible for bringing disaster to a city? Amos says the Lord has done it. Now, obviously, this is where the Westminster Confession comes in very, very helpful because there are primary and secondary causes. God may ordain disaster to come upon a city, and He at times may sovereignly intervene like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, and rained down fire from heaven. We can see that and say, well, that's definitely in the hand of God. God did that. God brought disaster to a city. Or God may ordain disaster to come to a city, and there may be secondary causes where he raises up kings, or he raises up leaders, or he raises up armies, and those armies go in, and they freely do what they wanted to do. They wanted to overthrow the city, and it happens because they're acting freely, they're acting out of their nature, they're wanting to pillage, but it's because God had ordained it. So sometimes God sovereignly, directly intervenes, And other times God is secondary where He ordains it but brings disaster to a city, but it comes through secondary causes. Let's move into the New Testament. 
Because some people may say, well, that's the Old Testament. That's under a theocracy. I've heard that argument before. That, that's how God operated under theocracy, and he doesn't operate that way anymore. Well, some of these verses happened before there was a theocracy. Some of these happened before the nation of Israel was birthed under the, the Sinai covenant or even under the Davidic covenant, back even with, with Abraham. Let's look at the New Testament. Matthew 10, 29 through 30. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That's great comfort. A sparrow does not die unless God ordains it to die. You may think of a bird dying in the, in, in the woods or a bird falling off a tree as just some random act. Well, the bird died. Well, God is sovereignly and meticulously ordained when that bird's going to die in the same way that he has the numbers of your hairs on your head numbered. Now, let's talk about Judas for a while. Um, and this actually is, is very interesting because this morning I had a men's Bible study. We have a Tuesday morning men's study, and, and we're going through the book of Revelation. And I don't know how this topic came up, but one of the men asked the question, well, what about Judas? Um, did Judas not have a choice? Uh, when we were talking about God's justice, and he started bringing up predestination and, and um and we, started, we didn't have much time to deal with it. But let's talk about the question of Judas. Did Judas have a choice? Did Judas act freely? Or did Judas do what God had ordained to happen? And the answer is yes. Judas acted freely, but Judas acted according to what God ordained to happen. Luke twenty two twenty two, Jesus says, For as the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. What's been determined? How's the Son of Man going to be betrayed? It has been determined beforehand that Judas is going to betray him. So it's a predetermined plan of God that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And so there's some meticulous sovereignty in Judas acting in betraying Jesus. Now, Judas acted freely. He did act under the inspiration of Satan. But it was all part of God's sovereign plan. We see this in the Last Supper in, in John 13, 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So is Judas acting on his own free will? Yes. Is he acting under the influence of Satan? Yes. Is he acting according to the way it had been determined? Yes. Jesus goes on to say in John 17, 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them, he's talking about his disciples here, has been lost except who? The son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It was predetermined by God's sovereign plan. It was predetermined by scripture. Jesus said it's going to go the way it's been determined. Satan is instrumental in this, and Judas is free in the way he acted, even though uh, he had impulses under Satan. And so Judas acted freely out of his nature to betray Jesus, but it was according to the fulfillment of scripture. And even the early church in Acts acknowledged this. In Acts 1.16, uh, Peter says, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The early church had strong theology about God's sovereign, meticulous, predetermined plan over all things. 
especially the death of Jesus. They did not look at the death of Jesus as an accident or as Jesus being a victim of circumstances. They saw the killing of Jesus as the predetermined plan of God. And so God ordained something that would be evil. God ordained the murder of His one and only sinless, perfect Son. That's something that God hates. God hates murder. God hates sin. God hates treachery. God hates betrayal. God hates duplicity. God hates hypocrisy. God hates cowardice. All the things that are related to the death of Christ with Pilate and with um, the Roman soldiers and with the, the Jewish leaders with their kangaroo court that brought false witnesses and trumped up charges against Jesus. God hates all of that, but yet it was all predetermined by God that that would happen so that Jesus would die on the cross. Acts 2, 23-24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, who's responsible for killing Jesus? Well, ultimately, you could say Pilate was responsible. He he sentenced Jesus to death. You could say it was the Jewish leaders because they're the ones who brought Jesus on trial. You could say it was Judas. He's the one who betrayed Jesus. You could say it was actually the Roman soldiers because they actually nailed Jesus to the cross. All these individuals acted freely to put Jesus to death, but yet it was the definite plan of God. They were doing what God had ordained to to be planned. They were acting freely. God was acting freely. God did not make them do that. They did that freely, yet in the freeness of them putting Jesus to death, they were doing exactly what God had predestined to take place. We see it again in Acts 4, 27-28. When they're praying, uh, the early church is praying, they're under persecution, uh, they, they're, they're, the, the leaders are breathing threats down their neck. This is what they say, For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And he lists the people that were complicit in the death of of Jesus directly. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Okay, those those are the characters. Those are the people that are guilty. Those are the direct human agents who put Jesus to death. But notice verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, I've heard non-Calvinists, Arminians, Synergists say that, again, this is one example where God predestined something to take place that goes against His will, but it's not the case in all things. You can't just say that because God did this with Jesus that He does it in all cases. And again, the burden of proof is on them to say, well, tell me why that that can't be so. Do you know the secret sovereign will of God? Has God revealed to you, Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to God? Do you know that? Can you make a blanket statement to say that it doesn't happen in all circumstances? Because we've just read a litany of verses that give overwhelming evidence that God is absolutely and meticulously sovereign. And then you go to Revelation chapter 17. This is the Babylonian, the the harlot of Babylon and the great prostitute and she's going to be destroyed by the kings of the earth, and they're going to burn her with fire. 
And why are they doing this? Revelation 17, 16 through 17. And the ten horns that you saw, they, those are probably kings, and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now, you see here a theme that we saw earlier in the Bible where God directly intervenes in people's hearts. God put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose. And this is a purpose of evil. This is a purpose uh, of, of giving allegiance to the beast. And so from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, we see that God is absolutely sovereign. God has meticulous sovereignty over all things. And Arminian synergist and non-Calvinistic traditional Southern Baptist, they don't want to come to grips with the overwhelming evidence because in an attempt to protect the free will of man, they have elevated that above the absolute sovereignty of God. Now, listen to Charles Spurgeon. I want to just close with a quote from Spurgeon, the great pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Listen to what he said. Quote, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes that every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses, the creeping of a spider over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence, the fall of leaves from a poplar tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He upholds to the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Catechism and the Second London Baptist Confession. But more importantly, Spurgeon understands God's meticulous sovereignty over absolutely everything. Now, he was challenged on this and said, well, if that's what you believe, then that's just fatalism. What's the difference between that and just mere fate? If everything's ordained, if everything's going down a path and nothing can be changed, then it's just fate and we're all doomed and, and there's no purpose in the universe. It's just fate. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon addressed that charge. Quote, what is fate? Fate is this, whatever is, must be. But there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says, whatever God ordains must be. But the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some great end. 
Fate does not say that. There is all the difference between fate and providence that there is between a man with good eyes and a blind man. Do you see his point? God has sovereign, meticulous, absolute control over all things with a purpose. It's not random. It's not reckless. It's not chance. God's not responding to things. God is not caught off guard. God is not reactionary. Everything that happens in the universe has a purpose. Now, here's the problem that we face. We don't always know what that sovereign purpose is. And God is under no obligation to tell us what that sovereign purpose is. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. As the sovereign, as the potter, He has rights to conceal that from us. He's under no obligation to reveal that to us. We're the the clay. He's the potter. Now, we may chafe at that. We may not like that. We may be angry at God for Him not disclosing that to us. But like Paul would say in Romans chapter 9, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? We have no right to tell God how He governs the universe. But what He has revealed, what the Scriptures do tell us, and we've looked at a litany of those, we've got to come to the conclusion that God is sovereignly, absolutely, meticulously in control of all things that come to pass. And nothing can thwart His purposes. You see, you have to start with this belief about God before you can go any further. And I love the way that John Calvin starts the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He basically says, and I'm paraphrasing, the opening paragraph says, this is true wisdom. This is the wisdom of what it means to to, to truly understand truth. Number one, we have to have a right knowledge of God. And number two, we need to have a right knowledge of ourselves. And that's what it all boils down to. Every fundamental theological truth or error or sub-biblical teaching will fail on those two doctrines. What you believe about the doctrine of God and what you believe about the doctrine of man will tell me everything about where you stand. If you believe that God is limiting His sovereignty, that God is sovereign sometimes, And in very rare occasions, he intervenes to override humans and that mankind is not totally dead in sin. They're not totally depraved in sin. They're not spiritually dead. They're not enslaved to sin. There's still an ability within them to be able to respond when given the truth that sin has not affected every part of their being, that their will is not in bondage, that they're not under guilt and condemnation from Adam's sin. If that's what you believe about God and man... That's going to tell me a lot about where you stand 
on many other issues. That's the Arminian, synergistic, traditionalist, non-Calvinist, Southern Baptist view. On the other hand, if you believe that God is absolutely sovereign and God meticulously governs everything that happens on this earth through both direct means at times and through secondary means at times, but nothing happens that is not under God's sovereign decree. And He is the potter, and He has rights over His creation, and we have no right to tell Him how to operate His universe. And if we believe that man is dead in sin, that we have inherited both guilt and sin from Adam, and we are in a state of depravity, we are spiritually unable to respond, we are dead, we are enslaved, we're hostile, we cannot please God, we cannot come to Christ, and we need the sovereign grace of God to regenerate us and make us alive in Christ. If that's what you believe about God and humans, that's going to tell me a lot about what you believe concerning many other theological truths. Now, we may say these are secondary issues. That at the end of the day, Calvinist and Reformed people can, can get along with Arminians and, and, and synergists. And I agree with you. We need to get along on a lot of areas. There's a whole lot more we have in common than we have differences. But yet, let's not downplay the stark differences we have. You and I need to come to grips with those two foundational statements that Calvin gives us, what's the first thing that pops into your mind when you think about God? And what's the first thing that pops into your mind when you think about man? Is God absolutely sovereign? Or is God sovereign to a degree that He limits His sovereignty because He values the freedom of man? Or is man enslaved to sin? Is man dead in sin? Is man spiritually incapable of doing anything positively to respond to the gospel without sovereign grace? This will affect your worship. This will affect your sanctification. This will affect your evangelism. And this will affect your Ecclesiology. Those are some big areas. It'll affect your worship. How do you worship God? It'll affect your sanctification. How do you grow in Christ? It'll affect the evangelism. How do you share the gospel? How do you do missions? And then it'll affect your ecclesiology. How do you do church? You see, these are fundamental issues. And they are issues that divide. And I would say that there's a deep divide there but not so deep that we can't partner on other issues. But I would just appeal to all of my listeners, go back and study the totality of Scripture and ask yourself the question, is God absolutely sovereign over all things? Or does God limit His power in order to preserve the free will of humans? And he's got a general plan for the future. And that future is significantly affected by what humans decide. And only on rare occasions does God directly intervene in the course of history and override man's decisions. 
So your definition of God's sovereignty will determine a lot of things in your life. And so would you pray and consider these truths about the nature of God and the nature of man? I pray this has been beneficial to you as we've looked at a biblical theology of God's sovereignty. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to receive an email from you. You can email me, um, seancole.net is the website where you can find that information. You can Facebook message me or become my friend on Facebook. Um, I'm on Twitter. It's at sdcole. You can go to um, our church's website as well. You can go to iTunes and give us a review and rating. Love to interact with you. Again, I really do appreciate all the people that listen across the United States and the world. I don't know who I reach. I just ran into a person the other day that said they, they listen to the podcast. And this person, um, I was, I was kind of shocked that they said that they listen to the podcast because I had no idea that this person, um, they're in another state, would be listening. So I don't know who listens, but I, I'm just thankful that you are. And I pray that you find this helpful. And most of all, um, would you just seek the Lord? Would you remain saturated in His Scriptures? Would you be a person of prayer and discernment? Would you be heavily involved in your local church? Would you submit to the pastors and elders in your local congregation? And would you experience the joy of what it means to follow Christ day by day, holding fast to His gospel of grace? Until next time, may God bless you and keep you, and may He make His face to shine upon you. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity.